In the latest episode of Vamos Verde, we are going to talk to one of the most prolific goal scorers in Major League Soccer history, Austin FC striker Giassi Zardes. We also talked to some folks who have been bringing the soundtrack to Austin's nightlife for over 20 years and are now providing the soundtrack at Q2 Stadium, their official DJ collective, Peligrosa. That's the latest episode of Vamos Verde. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Thanks for joining us for In Perspective, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, in collaboration with the Humanities Media Project, in order to highlight the importance of humanities research in a broader context. Today on the show, food and food politics. If you've ever been to a Whole Foods or a farmer's market, maybe a vegan restaurant or a co-op, you might have noticed signs on food that say things like free-roaming chickens or grass-fed non-antibiotic beef or non-GMO crackers. And you think to yourself, what does this all mean? Well, you're not alone. Our guests today spend a lot of time thinking about and demystifying stories about food and thinking about the history of food and food movements. And today, we'll see if we can't learn a thing or two from them. I'm your host, Rebecca McEnroy. Tom Philpond is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones. Raj Patel is a research professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He's also the author of Stuffed and Starved and the Value of Nothing, and is currently working on a documentary project about the global food system. And Marla Camp is the owner and publisher of Edible Austin. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start by just kind of getting your perspectives on the food industry. What brought you to this subject, and why are you so passionate about what you do? Tom, what do you think? Well, I think I started thinking about the food industry by asking the question 15 or so years ago, why does the food that we eat here in the United States tend to be so bad? Why are we the fast food nation? What happened to this country? And, you know, I had, I had spent some time in Mexico and had gotten really into um, cooking and reading um, cookbooks and cooking from, from cookbooks. And I hadn't traveled much outside of Mexico, but I, I was seeing all these other places in the world seem to have these really strong traditions around cooking that we didn't have here in the United States, or that we seem to be losing really fast. I mean, I grew up in Austin, not from here, from parents who moved here in the late 60s. And I just didn't come up with a strong sense of cooking tradition. And it seemed like a lot of our food was outsourced to companies, outsourced to fast food companies, to food processing companies. And as I got a taste for other countries' traditions, and also some traditions here in the U.S. I didn't have access to, like New Orleans or New Mexico or the Deep South. I started asking, why is it so bad here? What, what happened? What happened to our food traditions? And that's sort of how I got into writing about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, ha- what has really shocked you? Like, doing the research that you've done, and you've written for Mother Jones for quite a while, you know? Right. Like, what is really kind of surface that you thought, I I never would have thought of this? Uh, Well, I mean, I guess one thing is just the the level of concentration in the food system. I mean, I think I I went into it knowing that there were these big giant companies that control a lot of things. But 
as I started looking into it and learning that three or four companies control essentially the whole meat supply or a huge portion of the meat supply, um, and the same thing with every commodity you can think of, milk, um, even um, distributing vegetables or distributing f- food distribution, these are very tightly controlled markets by a small handful of companies. And I think that that insider, that sort of fact that I figured out explains the second thing that I was shocked by, and that is that really the inability of the federal government to regulate this industry very effectively. And I think that is because when a couple of companies control so much of an in- industry, they also um, are able to capture a huge amount of profit. And it's only rational that they would invest some of that profit in lobbying and creating a or helping to shape a regulatory structure that lets things go on. You know, I think a classic example is that scientists have known since the 50s that antibiotics, if they're they're used often and routinely, um, produce resistant bacteria that can that can harm us. And they've known since the, you know, the 70s that that was happening on factory meat farms. But the um, the FDA, the USDA, these these uh, federal agencies have had have shown just pathetic ability to stop the industry from doing that. And in fact, there was a breakthrough in 2013 where the FDA finally did something about it. But the program was voluntary and it had all these loopholes. And so those are the things that have shocked me the most, I think. Mm-hmm. And we will definitely come back to the FDA and the relationship between the government and scientists and food producers and why that is so rife with controversy. Um, Raj, what about you? How did you come to this this discussion? Well, I grew up um, in a convenience store, my parents' convenience store in London, um, surrounded by, <clears throat> you know, sort of salt and fat and sugar and cigarettes and pornography. In many ways, it was an ideal childhood. Uh, but I, um, I, I mean, I, I, so I didn't really spend much time thinking about the food system. Uh, the, the, the time that I did was actually through an interest in globalization and in the ways that bits of the world connect through food and through other things, uh, through trade in particular. And I was uh, one of the many organizers uh, at the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle in 1999. And I saw a group there called La Via Campesina, the Peasant Way, uh, that wasn't just protesting against the World Trade Organization, but were actively lobbying for a better food system. And they had some great ideas about what that should look like. They were were interested in things like the globalization of culture, which, you know, having lived in Britain and lived through the, the, the food system there, I thought was a very good idea. You know, the British national cooking strategy is to boil something uh, and then boil it some more. Uh, and and so when Indian food came to Britain, I think everyone celebrated. But, you know, th- th- there, was, there was a sort of a moment of sort of cultural mixing there. And, and you, you ended up with things like the, uh, the chicken tikka masala, you know, a, 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 a food that's, um, you know, the analog, I suppose, in, in the United States is like chow mein. It doesn't exist outside the United States and, and chicken tikka masala doesn't exist outside Britain. It's a, a mixture of uh, an Indian style of cooking and gravy heavy stuff that's from Britain. And you, you globalize the culture in a very interesting way. And their vision for La Via Campesina's vision for the, the food system was, was very exciting to me. And so I, I started working much more specifically around the food system uh, in the late 90s because of them. And Marla, what about you? Well, I grew up in the 50s and 60s when packaged food was the cat's meow. 
And um, I was lucky that my mother was a, actually a very good cook and tended to use frozen rather than canned vegetables. So, um, and she was very creative, cooking interesting and flavorful things, mostly in ethnic traditions, because the ethnic food really was, as you both said, very much what was imparting both a flavor for the food and also a cultural flavor to people's uh, cuisine. So in the United States, since we didn't really have our own much. Um, so I, as I grew up and realized that uh, food was interesting, I think as I uh, got to become an adult, I was shocked that most people didn't really think about their food. It really wasn't a second thought. It was an afterthought. I mean, it was just fuel. Um, it be, has become tasteless. It has become disconnected, dramatically disconnected to the earth and the people that grow and make it. Um, including the, the oceans that are most of our planet. And, and, it, and there just seemed to be this lack of awareness. And so what motivated me to start um, trying to, to really just raise awareness about this um, through, through publishing our magazine, Edible Austin, was, was just that, to, to try to reconnect people to their food and their food system and understand that they're very much an integral part of you know what makes what makes food, and I mean the things that have come up have been these narratives of tradition. You know, like where is our food tradition? How are our traditions changing? And how can we kind of identify who we are as a people through our food traditions? And I'm wondering, you know, as you've you've done all of your work and you continue to do this work, what are the discussions now that you're having about food traditions? How have they evolved and changed, and how are they shaping the way that people? Are looking at food these days that you've you know dealt with and come in contact with? Well, I think there's uh, in the literature, in the food literature, um, authors like uh, Michael Pollan and Dan Barber and Raj, uh, and and things that Tom writes about as well. There's uh, an emphasis now on discovering diversity and again and trying to bring back diversity as a fundamental element of of sustainable life on our planet. Um, without it nothing thrives and nothing evolves. And so that direction towards monoculture and towards, you know, monotony in food has taken us far afield from where we really should be experiencing life and um, sustaining life on the planet. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think making that connection, and I'm seeing more and more food literature focus on, on that, creating diversity, getting back to, to real food, understanding how important the soil is and the oceans are to sustaining life and food. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of an interesting trajectory of a conversation because now you're talking about diversity and sustainability, whereas I think, you know, post-World War II, we were talking about feeding the world and how do we generate all of this food and how do we keep everybody fed? What did that do to the way that we understand food? Well, actually, can I just go back very quickly to this, this food tradition? Yeah. Just because I... I I, I, I worry about tradition. I, I think that it's the, the, the penultimate refuge of scoundrels before they're shaken out and they have to run off to patriotism. I mean, uh, the, the thing about tradition is sometimes it gets to be uh, one of these things that can be very exclusionary. I, I mean, I, I, I think the... the I mean, to a concrete example, uh, in Italy at the moment, in, in, in northern Italy, there's uh, a move to ban kebabs um, because it is not an Italian food. And it, it's, a, it's a way, basically, of being racist. The Northern League in Italy is 
very honest about this, at least. that They, they, they don't want those people selling kebabs on their streets. They, they want normal Italian food like tomatoes, which are a new world crop, and pasta, which comes from China. Uh, and instead, you know, it, it's a very interesting moment where tradition gets solidified and defended by certain kinds of, uh, you know, culinary um, champions uh, and where diversity actually can get squeezed out. So I, 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 I'm, I'm grateful, in fact, that, that there are ways in which people are recognizing that tradition is always changing and uh, that, in fact, it can be a way of stamping out um, diversity. And, and actually, that, that, that's one of the nice things about um, the, the modern sort of twist in, in some of the food writing and some of the food movement is actually a recognition and embracing of diversity because in certain parts of the world, tradition can be a way in which um, diversity gets clobbered on the head. Um, but but getting to the Green Revolution, I mean, th that, that was just a way of enforcing a kind of monoculture um, around the world to be able to, to feed standardized crops to people in cities. Uh, that, that, that was also the enemy of tradition, but in a very different way. Mm -hmm. I, but when I was talking about diversity, I was talking about like diversity in plants and things like that. Is, is there a... Is there a way that tradition or a traditional perspective on eating can sustain diversity in plants as opposed to stamp it out? You know. Well, I mean, I think I think the answer the answer is yes, but I also think that to build on what, what Raj was saying, a lot of times when we talk about tradition, we're we're hearkening back to a past that I think we're romanticizing, um, and if you look at if you look at the history, you know, it's really, it gets really hard for me when I hear people say stuff like we should all, we should all eat like our, our grandmothers did, um, which is a common thing to say. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense on some levels. And, the, you know, the idea there is that, you're, you know, you're, you're eating things that you can identify and pronounce that you can sort of put together yourself as opposed to something that has, you know, in the store that has 50 ingredients, half of which you can't pronounce. I get that part of it. But it also harkens back to this time when, you know, maybe your grandmother was because of uh, her, the color of her skin or where she was born. She was a housekeeper and couldn't afford very high quality food and didn't have time to cook. And so maybe she was already relying on pretty low quality stocks of food. And all that all those kinds of histories are lumped together under this kind of romanticized ideal of pre-industrial revolution and or, or pre-industrial uh, food, and I think that, that that when you study the history of food, food has always been a, it's always been a problem. It's always been hard to figure out how to you know create enough food for people to eat. This is not a this is not a new problem, and it's always been trouble. And even under even in the age of our grandmothers, and really a lot of our grandmothers were. Uh, operating at the, at the start of the, of the Green Revolution, when food became already became sort of commoditized, and you know, you started uh, churning out vast amounts of calories of stuff like corn and soybeans fed fed to animals. All of that said, um, some places in in the world do have traditions that enforce or sort of uphold biodiversity. Um, I think that you know when. When you have a society like in, like the United States, where you get this rapid industrialization, and you know, in the early '70s, very few people were questioning it. People were flocking to McDonald's and um, buying up TV dinners and stuff. When when you have that, um, there there is no reason to have a diversity of crops. Basically, corn and soy will do it for you. You can get all these ingredients out of it. You can get all this meat out of it. You can get all these artificial flavors from it. And when you have a society that has a, 
you know, traditions of cooking from various, you know, various different kinds of, of crops, then you're enforcing an agriculture that, that grows those crops. And we, we went away from that. And, you know, in the past 15 years, we've seen a dramatic um, upsurge in diversity of crops growing in the United States. It's sort of at the margins of things. We're still dominated by corn, corn and soy. But all across the country, there are small and mid-sized farms that are growing a, a variety of ingredients. Anyone who goes to a farmer's market can tell you that, that if you go to a farmer's market now, you see um, crop, you see varieties of things like tomatoes and greens that you probably didn't even know existed 10 or 15 years ago. And so it, it, you know, when you can create a tradition or when you have traditions already of eating a diverse amounts of food, then yes, obviously, then you will support an agriculture that, that does that. And I think it has all, as to go back to what Marla was saying, has all kinds of positive knock-on effects. We know that diversity in agriculture really is the key to preserving soil, to preserving water, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of uh, your publication, Edible Austin, you know, what are the conversations that you're having with people around food in Austin in particular? Because Austin seems to have a very thriving urban farming um, community and people who are really interested in food, but is it um, elite or is it sustainable or how, how do you feel like it's really affecting Austin as a whole? Well, that's a good question. And that's something that we, we try to examine uh, as we go along. Um, I, I think when we started publishing eight years ago, it was a very different food scene than it is today. Um, we like to think we've been part of that expansion of you know knowledge and connecting um, people in Austin to what could be a farm to table you know chef and restaurant culture more than it used to be here um, and then you know the with the growth of farmers markets it's the food is just much more accessible to chefs as well as ordinary people and the the work that the sustainable food center does for example in teaching, uh, food education in schools into uh, lower economic uh, income areas where you can you can actually teach people, parents and kids, about gardening and about where food comes from and all of that knowledge. Knowledge is key. So the more you know, we can write about and communicate these things to our readers. That's obviously our goal. And uh, there's a plethora of, um, of, you know, farms and farmers. And, you know, one of our big concerns is that the farming tradition, while coming back, as Tom said, it's also in danger of losing um, a lot of older farmers. And there needs to be farmer new farmer education. And so we've seen the growth of conferences here in the Austin area, like the Farm and Food Leadership Conference, uh, a lot of education and mentoring going on with, you know, farms existing here. That are, that are seeing the importance of keeping farming alive. The programs like Urban Roots, which you know, directly teaches kids um, in high school and pays them to learn how to farm organically and, and teaches them how to cook. The chefs that participate in those, those programs like that really do a lot towards teaching kids. So there's a lot of, you know, by, by writing about these programs, these people, uh, we hope to just raise that awareness and, and spread the word about what opportunities we're, we have here in Austin area. Mm-hmm. I also feel like it's just become something um, very new and urban, like the idea of growing your own food, the idea of farming. It went from kind of, I remember um, people who were in the FFA, you know, the Future Farmers of America, being one kind of 
very clear-cut set of farmers who would go and work on farms. And um, and there's a different identity around people interested in farming now and, and gardening. Um, what do you kind of um, reckon that to? Well, I mean, and, uh, and it, you know, the, the, the traditional extension services for through universities, you know, it's still very important. And, and they're real, they're expanding too, and, and focusing more and more on sustainable agriculture and organic and the importance of, of, of that. And, and that's a big, good direction for them to go in. Um, but definitely, I, I just think that, that there is so much that you can do with the education uh, angle of this and, and teaching people about about methods and, I mean, very specific things like how do you plant a garden? How do you, you know, how do you make your soil uh, healthy? And how do you, what, what are, why are microbes important? And, you know, very specific kinds of things that, that can be taught yeah. that we're seeing more and more here. I think it's a really interesting discussion, and it's something, also this idea of education and um, public knowledge that I would like, you know, to spend a little bit of time on, which is what should the public know in your mind? Like, thinking about educating the public about, um, and especially youth, about the the soil and how to raise good things, you know, and, and how to kind of be active in that. And then stepping back and seeing the food industry and what that's doing and what that means in the United States and then even stepping back from that and, and seeing kind of the um, atrocities that are um, suffered by a lot of people working in the food industry. W- at what level do you kind of have to temper your um, educational strategy when you're talking, especially with kids or to you know your, the communities that you're writing for, if at all? Uh, well, I mean, I don't think you temper it. I, I, I think that's you, you, the the more you can can grow in that direction, the better. I mean, the more kids understand about the horrors of industrial agriculture, the better. The more they see a connection to farmers in Nepal and farmers in their in in Austin, the better. You know, the more they see the bigger picture, and then and, you know, and as I said, I mean, the steps on how to get there. That's all very critical, and I don't think you shut any of that out. And you continually explore those connections between these things, mm-hmm. um, because that's how we all learn and you know and find new creative solutions for problems. I think identifying the problems is is critical because those bright young kids, the more they learn, the more they're going to be finding the solutions to our problems. And we have many many problems right now, mm-hmm. so that's a that's a just a good thing. So it is important for them to see those those films about you know um, caged animals being treated badly and. You know, and understand at the same time the other side of that that you know that that human beings um, eat meat, and there are more humane and sustainable ways to to create food products that include proteins like that. And actually, understanding nutrition is also very important. There's been a lot of misinformation in the nutrition world, um, unfortunately, through a lot of traditional medicine and and other other directions that our country especially has gone in, where we've lost some of that that connection to what is the true value of food to your body? Just in that very simple sense, like why, why is raw milk actually good for you and not dangerous anymore? But I mean, it's, it's a conversation that's hard to have in Austin. I mean, you know, particularly with Austin losing, what, nine acres of farmland a day and with um, you know, re- recent studies showing that, in fact, you know, the number of poor people in Austin is <clears throat> going down because everyone's being gentrified out. I mean, the, 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 these conversations around hunger and poverty and food are... I mean, it's just, 
it, it's it's hard to have them. I mean, they have a material kind of context that that that, that not only needs discussion but also sort of activism, um, and and that's important. If we even if we're just talking about education, because we get educated about the food system, particularly our kids, every day, and not just in school. Um, you know, just as a, a parent trying to raise a child. It's hard to take responsibility as we are encouraged to do uh, for our children because it, you know it's 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 my word versus a billion dollar clown, uh, you know if it's McDonald's marketing or if it's you know whatever sort of forces are teaching my children outside the classroom whenever they're exposed to, to a billboard uh, and they will have questions about well what's that uh, th that is a process in which we educate and we have allowed our children to be educated far beyond the classroom and we've ceded the right to, to be free to educate our children properly around food because of the the the, the environment that you know the, the the food environment in which we find ourselves and so I, I take heart from other places where that have taken that pro problem quite seriously so Brazil for example is currently mooting the banning of all advertising of everything to children um, because you know if, if if we're serious about education then and we're serious about parents having the freedom and responsibility of being able to educate their children about how to eat then they should have that freedom and responsibility and not be you know, up against the unspeakable odds of a, you know millions of dollars of, uh, of fast food advertising in order to be able to you know, deprogram their children to something more more intelligent I think and along with, with that kind of idea, um, to go back to something Marla was talking about, I think that the, the public school classroom and cafeteria are incredible missed opportunities to not, you know, I think obviously banning junk food advertising to kids is important and would go a long way, but we're also losing opportunities every day to teach people. And, um, and the thing about food is that it is this incredible, like, you know, something as simple as a tomato or transforming a tomato into a sauce. There is so much culture and science and history involved in that process. I mean, Raj referred mm. earlier to the, the origin of tomato being, being the new world coming from, you know, basically being domesticated in Mexico. I think it came from Peru and moved up and got domesticated in Mexico. These are fascinating stories. How did this happen? How did it get to, why do we associate tomatoes with Italy? How did all this stuff happen? Um, you, you know, you're getting into history and culture. Um, and then what happens when you um, take garlic and crush it and saute it in olive oil? What kind of chemical reaction is going on there? And then you dump the tomatoes in. These are all things that, that could be, that are very concrete, that people can taste and sense they're visceral that you could be using to have all these great conversations. And I think that instead of doing anything like that, um, it's very similar to when I was a kid growing up in Austin in the seventies, when you go into the school room and they would slop some food on your plate. And that was the end of the discussion about, you, you, there's no real discussion about food. And I, so I think that, um, that, you know, the, the, the sort of public sphere can only influence and and control things like advertising so much. They could obviously be doing a lot more, but the school cafeteria, the public school cafeteria in the classroom, these are the way that we, this is the, our public way of presenting what the food system looks like. And the way we're doing it now, it looks like, um, you know, chocolate milk and, um, so, I don't even know what they're serving now in cafeterias, but well, it, it, it's a lot of stuff in plastic. It, that's true, Tom, but it, it, it is changing. And I, and I have to say it's been very um, 
wonderful experience to see change happening at the top. So in the White House, when Sam Cass started cooking for the Obamas, and they started planting a garden, and they started, you know, Michelle started um, spreading the word about healthy eating to children, especially, and her whole campaign, the Let's Move campaign, and all of that, at a, at a very public, uh, political public level, um, awareness started to happen in school systems. And so you've got, um, you've got a number of school systems around the country, including Colorado and Denver, um, who have implemented healthy eating in schools. And they're role models now for, for more and more schools. And we're, we're seeing it in Austin starting to happen. And a lot of, of school gardening is used as educational tie-in with food. And it, it is changing. It's changing slowly. And I'd love to see it more of a mandated kind of thing. Um, and, and a lot of it is economic. They're trying to figure out how you really can feed kids healthy food on, on the kind of budgets they have. And it is definitely possible. And that's, that's education. That's teaching people how to cook again. More importantly, how not to waste food. Because as you teach, you know, honoring food as an important quality of life, you're also teaching kids not to waste food. And the less we waste food, the more food there is for for us, and so that's a very basic principle too. I think that's that is starting to be considered very, very important in the literature, and we try to write about it a lot. And you know, some people would even say, "Well, why aren't you teaching your children how to cook at home? You know, why aren't you showing them how to cook these meals?" And you know, parents are saying, "Well, I only have ten minutes to cook for my child because I have to get you know all of their homework done. Plus, I work. Plus, I do this and that." You know. Food, um, the food preparation and food is a part of what we do together as people. Where do you think that is in our society today in America? Where do you, I mean, I think with Edible Austin, there's a celebration of cooking together and it's very beautiful. But do you think that is a reality for most of Americans? Well, again, I think it's our, our job as, as writers and, and communicators to, to make it more available um, to people in America. Uh, it's We have a long way to go. Uh, the traditions of cooking and passing that along in, in other countries is much stronger. Um, I think it's coming back here. I think that, uh, again, as Tom was talking about, you know, cooking with your kids is, is a form of education and it's kind of like homeschooling in a way. You can teach kids a lot in the kitchen. Um, and But if the parents don't have the cooking skills, it's hard for them to teach it. So you really do have to look at educating the parents as much as the kids. And also, um, and that's where the schools can come in as well. And and we're seeing more and more of that. But yeah, it's incredibly important mm-hmm. to teach cooking. Cooking is, is, is elemental in respecting food and enjoying it. It's like that's a social pleasure of, of eating is in the preparation and, and in the sharing. That's where food just becomes magical. But it is a constraint. I mean, you need time and money to do that. And without those two things, I mean, at some level, the food movement earns its reputation as being snobbish and elitist. Um, Because unless we address these issues of time and money, then all we're saying is, well, y'all should just, you know, cook the kale and, uh, and you know, or, you know, kiss the, the, the whatever it is that, that, you know, the magical ingredient of the moment. Um, But Without, uh, I mean, one of the groups that really takes us on board I, that, that I was pleased to learn about was um, slow food. Uh, mm-hmm. as, and people may know slow food as as a, as a much more kind of middle class or even an elitist organization, but its uh, origins certainly were not. I mean, the origins of slow food were in the Italian anarchist tradition, where that they organized with 
farm workers in Italy who were the poorest paid people, and they were organized to increase their wages so that they could afford to eat well, and also organized for a two-hour lunch break so that people could actually enjoy their food. And I think that, that you know, I mean, it's important for us to combine both the, the sort of education and the, 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 the encouragement to cook uh, with the, the sort of material context in which people can actually do that. Yeah. Well, and we've been taught that food is fast and food is cheap. And I think that that's another part of education is that food, we spend in this country less on food uh, as part of our income than many, many other countries around the world. And I think as we take the money we do have and allocate it differently and, and use it wisely, you can, you know, you can take a chicken and a whole chicken and, you know, it, while it's cooking, you can do other things and use that chicken a million different ways and then use leftovers from things that you make in different creative ways. And they used to do that in like Luby's cafeteria. They used to take the food that was left over and reimagine it for the next day's meals. We don't do that anymore. Part of it is regulations and part of it is just lack of knowledge, lost knowledge yeah. of how to do it. But I agree with Raj that, you know, that I cringe when we in the food movement are, are, are labeled elitist because so much of it is, is true, but I want that to change. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to find ways both in terms of our culture and the way we think about food to make that change. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit to talk about a few other big things before we wrap up the discussion. And one is this relationship between how the FDA regulates what is good for us and the relationship between the FDA and scientific researchers and the food industry and why these things are so conflated and difficult to understand. Well, so the way, I mean, the way that they're related is that there is a, you know, rather constant revolving door between industry and regulation. And that that's true throughout the United States government. And I, the, the justification for it is that, well, these people are from industry, so they understand it and we can use their insights to help regulate it. But we know that it doesn't really work that way and that oftentimes interests are are coming into play and influences uh, come into play. And so as a result, what you get is the sort of, you know, very, in the, you know, the other big element to talk about is the way that regulating the food supply is so fractured because you've got the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that is supposed to regulate the safety of what you're actually eating. And then you've got the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that regulates the way that food is grown on farms. And these are two separate agencies and they sort of overlap over meat because confusingly the USDA controls the safety of the meat supply and the FDA doesn't have as much say over that. And so you get this incredibly fractured system where I, and I think a perfect example is when I mentioned earlier antibiotics in the meat supply where the, F, the USDA, which is supposed to oversee farms, doesn't have anything to say about it. And the FDA has not been able to do anything about it until very recently. And as I said, it was inadequate. And the, re you know, the reason is that you've got, it's sort of the same thing with climate change or so many other things in our society where the industry is able to fund a lot of science that basically just clouds the issue that no serious person thinks that there's not, no serious scientist Think, um, doesn't think there's a link between antibiotic resistance 
and the way we use antibiotics in farms. But the, the industry is able to uh, produce reports that cloud the connection, that say, well, how do you know that? That say that there's, you know, that sort of inject doubt into the conversation. And because, because of this sort of revolving door and, you know, the, this fractured, the, the fractured uh, stru- uh, structure of the system, these doubts are, are able to sort of gum up action. And so you get years and years and years of, of inaction. You know, another great example is um, trace amounts of chemicals that end up in the food supply. You know, things like BPA, which is this um, plasticizer that's in um, all can linings that, uh, that apparently at very small doses leaches out of the, the can into our food and causes all manner of problems uh, in our bodies, um, everything from cancer to possibly things like asthma and stuff like that in kids. And um, the, the science is pretty strong around it, but the industry is, is able to say, well, you haven't proven it completely. And since you haven't proven it completely, then we shouldn't do anything about it. And I think that also gets us to um, one of the uh, another major problem is that you might think that these agencies would use a precautionary principle that, OK, if there's a possibility that this that this uh, BPA stuff that's in almost every can that we have is causing problems, maybe we should pull back and, and stop using it. Um, that's not how they work. The way that, that our regulatory system works is it's got to have definitive proof. And when you have, uh, when you have a sort of threshold like that, then the industry sort of doubt machine, like sort of uh, buying, you know, basically paying for science that raises doubt can gum up the works. Well, we don't have absolute proof because there's this doubt. Therefore, we, we keep letting it happen. And there's example after example after example like that in our food system. And when was it that we started to rely on the federal government to tell us what was good for us? Well, that's a that's that's sort of kind of a a different question. I mean, before the uh, like say let's say nineteen the year nineteen hundred, um, you had all of this um, all all of these additives in meat. You had all of this um, adulteration. You had all kinds of food fraud. Um, things being labeled as one thing but not, not being that thing. You had the whole problem of the jungle, this Uptown Sinclair book where literally like people's limbs are falling into the sausage and, and things like that. And so it made a lot of sense for the federal government to step in and to start regulating this stuff. Now, what I think you're talking about, though, is the sort of dietary guidelines that, uh, the, that the USDA puts out. And I think maybe Marla or Raj can comment. I think that started more like in the 30s when this idea with the sort of rise of you know so the the USDA has got this weird role of both promoting agriculture it exists one of the things that exists to do is to promote US agriculture but it also regulates US agriculture so it puts it in this rough bind and I think that um, that the dietary guidelines are a great example of how that that bind plays out where you get stuff you know you get um, these sort of crazy guidelines we've gotten over the years where, um, you know, something like we talked about um, before, where dairy is a food group. Well, how did dairy become a food group? Why is that not just a protein? How did it become a food group? Well, you know, the, the government's promoting the dairy industry in that case. But does anyone know when they started to put out those guidelines? I think it was more like in the 40s, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I 
not 100% sure, but a lot of it is marketing. Um, there are two things happening. One is marketing the industry, uh, and that's where a lot of their money goes, and the other is in lobbying in the industry. And I, I don't think people realize the connection between, say, the pharmaceutical industry and food. It's huge. It's uh, I think more pharmaceuticals are 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 created to to um, treat animals uh, in the food system than they are for humans, and that's another part of education. And I don't think people. I think people once they start to see these relationships between hard science and and paid for science, and you know, and and marketing versus education, and um, you know, industries that are behind the scenes versus the the happy, you know, farmer ads that they put out as part of their marketing campaigns. It's really not those happy farmers. It's really, you know, Monsanto behind it or uh, Cargill behind it or, or a chemical uh, pharmaceutical company behind it. Uh, so the more people see that, uh, I think, and that's what's so great about having people write about it uh, and research it is, uh, you know, the better. Mm -hmm. The more they'll make more informed food decisions because it really comes down to people being informed enough to make the right decisions about how they use the food. The, the last question, I want to ask one more question before I ask the last question, but the last question I want to ask is, what do you tell people who say, I know all this stuff or I know a little bit about the food industry enough to scare me and I don't want to know anymore? Like, I'm, I'm so, I just don't want to know anymore. I want to go to the grocery store and I want to buy the cheapest eggs in the deli and stop talking to me. That'll be the last question I ask. But before we get there, um, you know, Raj, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, we've brought up a couple times marketing and advertising and things. And I want to talk about these relationships that marketing campaigns and certain foods have to our notion of who we are. Like, what is the relation between the way that advertising is creating these myths about food, about food traditions, mm. and how does that inform our notion of who we are and how to, what ads have you seen that have really played with those ideas? Well, I mean, I, I certainly think one of the things we can, that's worth noting is uh, the way gender and body types feature in uh, adverts. Um, I mean, there's a, uh, th there's a, a rather horrific uh, study around what happened when um, satellite TV was brought to um, the Fiji Islands um, before you could only get sort of terrestrial television and then all of a sudden uh, sa satellite TV being uh, started to be beamed into Fiji and um, rates of bulimia in Fijian teenage girls went from zero to, to, to sort of over 30 percent uh, it was some sort of ridiculous figure um, and there's 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 a sort of anthropology of body types uh, in another set of Pacific islands that the, where, where the girls are referring themselves as having either a fanta body because of the, the shape of fanta bottle or a coke body that, that depending on the shape of a coke bottle and th th there's um, it's it's really interesting the way that that, that uh, body image, and particularly women's bodies, are represented in uh, in advertising around um, around U.S. food products. And this isn't something of the past. I mean, um, the, the the adverts for Coke's new milk product, uh, Fairlife, um, were roundly criticised by almost everyone who saw them as being sexist um, and as uh, involving these sort of impossible body shapes. Um, but I, I mean, I, I certainly think that that's kind of a universal when it comes to. Um, the, the, the food industry. I, I used to teach a, a class called Masculinity and Capitalism, 
it was, it was a whale of a time. We we watched um, we watched Fight Club and we watched the Full Monty and uh, and and we we watched a range of adverts. And what was really interesting in the adverts is that you always saw. Uh, men eating and women providing the food unless unless women were eating ice cream in the most seductive way possible women never ate on television uh, I, I don't know if I, I haven't studied it recently enough to be able to check whether that's true but my suspicion is it remains the case that women don't eat on TV in adverts uh, and th I mean in and, and that that seems to be a fairly sort of universal I mean I, 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 I'm certain it's the case in Indian advertising uh, that that there are certain gender roles that are communicated by uh, by advertising that are um, absolutely pernicious. What about the way that national identity becomes conflated with our association with food? And I'm thinking specifically of this notion of um, bacon being a really American product. And I just, you know, I'm wondering uh, like what Roland Barthes would say about our association with bacon and national identity. Well, I mean, I, I grew up a Hindu in Britain, where roast beef, of course, is what the French call um, the you know the roast beef is is what you know, what what French call the the British and limeys uh, what the American call the British because you know the British used to come uh, to to America to the Americas with uh, citrus uh, to stop them getting scurvy. I mean, the, the food and ident national identity have always been fa fairly tightly bound together. But uh, it's very interesting, for example, in India right now to see. Uh, the bans on uh, beef. Uh, you're not allowed to kill beef in certain Indian states. For, uh, you're not allowed to kill cows, rather, uh, in certain Indian states. Uh, and that's a, a project of Hindu nationalism. But it's also a, a project of um, middle caste Hindus, because, in fact, uh, untouchables have, have a long history of eating uh, beef. Uh, and that there's a, you know, the, the, the ban on killing cows ends up uh, persecuting not only Muslims but uh, but basically everyone who's not a middle class middle class Hindu. Um, so th th there, I mean, f food and national identity are, are, are projects that are alive at the moment. Again, to, just to return to that Italian example of persecuting people who don't eat pasta. Uh, again, and pasta being precisely the, the, this this food that is you know pasta and tomatoes. Isn't, there's nothing purely Italian about that. So that's a, it's a massive construct. Uh, but it ends up being strategically a, 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 a moment of food identity that's, I mean, in all of these cases, Islamophobic. And I think that that's, you know, returning to bacon, of course, that, 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 that's, that's a tremendously interesting point that, that matters here as well. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get to this last question then. You know, what, what can we leave people with? This, the notion of, you know what, I give up. There's so much information out there. It's clouded. What we really know, the relationship between the scientific data and what we understand. Um, wh where to begin? You know, what should we take with us? What should we kind of carry with ourselves to the grocery store when we're thinking about buying food and approaching food? Well, I'll just take this from the Edible Austin perspective. Um, part of it is bringing things back to to, to home and keeping things very local. Um, when you go to the farmer's market, for example, instead of the grocery store, you don't need to worry about what's on the label. You meet the farmer or the food artisan and, and, you, and you talk to them. Um, so it takes out, it takes that middle layer out and it's very direct. And I think that's why we want to emphasize how important it is to, you know, right now in the Texas legislature, there's a bill to um, double the value of WIC. Uh, for you know what used to be the food stamp program for people to shop at farmers markets. So, putting more farmer market opportunities in um, food deserts and encouraging people that don't have a lot of money to shop there with incentives like doubling the dollar. 
um, on the food they spend at a farmer's market um, can go a long way towards, you know, democratizing, you know, getting to know our local food scene better. But supporting the local food economy is one way that people can come to terms and understand uh, food without having to think about, you know, the safety laws or the this or the that, you know. And, and we tell stories, you know. So when people get to know the story behind a chef or a farmer or uh, someone who is teaching people how to make preserves or people that care about uh, teaching you how not to waste food. Once these stories, the storytelling is very powerful because it's not, it's not confusing and it's not, it's, it's empowering people to make those direct connections, you know, and how to, once you know how to make a garden, you don't need to worry about food that comes in a plastic package, you know. So I think that's what we're trying to do. Tom, what do you think? One thing that I've noticed over the years is sort of reading the the nutrition studies that come out and reading the headlines about them as well is that, you know, first of all, I can see why, why people get confused. I mean, we grew up thinking that butter was the devil and hearing hearing that, and suddenly we're finding out that it isn't so bad, especially taken in moderation. It can be actually quite good for you. And something like, um, uh, what is it, margarine, which was sold you know, through the 70s and 80s. It's this sort of innocuous thing that you could just take as much as you wanted. Turns out to be really bad for you because it's got this, you know, partially hydrogenated oil, uh, which, you know, ruins your heart, essentially. And so people people see these transformations. Now butter is, you know, now it's the devil. Now it's now it's the cure. And I think they they walk away and get confused and say, you know, the hell with it. I'm I'm th- through with the whole enterprise. I'm just going to eat whatever I want to. And what, my only response to that would be that I, as many studies as I've sifted through and read of, you know, basically what diets make people healthy. You know, there's all. It, it turns out there's all different kinds of diets that people have eaten in history and and now in different parts of the world that that make people healthy, but I've never seen one based on highly processed food. I mean, all food is sort of processed. You, you know, you buy yogurt, it's processed milk. You buy milk, it's processed milk, right? I mean, it's been it's been through processing. So it, you know, it's important to say you know highly processed. You know, stuff that's packaged. Or, or stuff you get from a fast food restaurant. There's never been a study that found a mix of things like that that doesn't increase things like heart disease, um, you know, things like obesity, things like diabetes, or these really debil- especially in something like diabetes, this really debilitating um, kind of condition. Um, and so what I take away from that is getting back to diversity if you eat a diversity of foods, that has always been a good thing. And hey, if one of those things is bad, if you're eating a whole, if you're eating a whole bunch of stuff and one of the 10 things you're eating might be bad for you, that's sort of marginalizing it. But if you're eating three different things and one of those things is bad for you, then it's going to be a lot worse, right? So diversity, um, buying fresh food and cooking it if you can. And just sort of like staying away as much as possible from these highly processed convenience products. Now, the flip side of that is that it does require time and it does require income. And it gets us back to the conversation we've been having. And I think that one thing that we in the sustainable food movement or people in that movement have to do is talk about things like the the broader economy. You can't separate this issue out 
from the broader economy. And we know that the U.S. economy, the, the median wage has been stagnant for 35, 40 years. And so we've got to work on wage stagnation. And one of the ways that we can do that is the food industry is a massive employer. Uh, it's, I think it's the biggest employer or it's one of the biggest employer, employers overall. It's also, you know, eight, uh, you know, some large number of the lowest paid jobs, meatpacking workers, clerks at Walmart, um, people who work as farm workers. These are all poverty wage jobs. And I think that we can become part of of movements to improve those wages, I think it's really, really important to do. Um, and, you know, what I would tell people, you know, as a takeaway message is just do the best you can to, to buy unprocessed food and a wide variety of them, experiment, try to have fun with it is, is my best advice. Do you think they should be as concerned um, about the relationship between organic and conventional as between diversity and or diversifying their diet? I think diversifying their diet is, is, is the main thing. I think it's also important to support or, organic when you can um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. But one of the reasons is that you're not only, only protecting yourself from traces of pesticides, which might be actually really important if you have kids. The smaller your body is, um, or if you're a pregnant woman, um, th this could be very important because there's just very little research on how a, a multiplicity of pesticides. So, you know, basically the food that you get in the grocery store, the, the pesticide residues are all, are all under this EPA set limit, probably. The studies show that they're under these, these limits. Um, and, you know, we've just been talking about how problematic, the, you know, these agencies are in regulating this stuff. But what isn't studied is the way that four or five pesticide traces together, even if they're all under the limit individually, how they're acting together as a cocktail. There's just no, not very much research on that. And what research there is, is disturbing. So by buying organic, you're opting out of that system for the most part. But you're also protecting farm workers who are in the middle of it. Um, and I think that's that's important as well. So I'm not saying, you know, buy 100% organic or your history's worst monster. What I am saying is buy organic when you can. It is, it is more expensive. And if you can't afford it, that's fine. But if you can afford it, buy it when you can. Mm -hmm. Raj, what about you? I mean, I've been doing some research because I understand this. I mean, this this confusion. Everyone feels it. I mean, we 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 we're just baffled when we go into the supermarket. And I was just curious about when it started. And it's it's at least four hundred years old. This confusion about what it is that we should eat, and it emerges at the same time as individual consumer culture emerges, where it is you know you're making individual choice about what it is that's going into your body, and so and you you have gurus like a guy called George Cheney who uh, lived, uh, I mean, who was Britain's most famous surgeon. He was also Europe's fattest man, he claimed, uh, in, the, in the 1700s. And he, 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 was, he was kind of like a restoration Oprah. Um, he, uh, uh, he, he wrote confessions about how much weight he lost and, uh, and had huge followings. In, uh, and he, he had a, a, a way of talking about diet that really made sense to the people of his time because they were doing things alone as individual consumers. And I think uh, coming to the table with a historical sense of, of, of this is, the, our confusion is the end point of a long period of individuation, of 
uh, of an individualizing of food culture that we can fight back by doing things together. That I think is a very powerful feeling. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we fight for fifteen, for example, when we you know stand up for workers' rights together, we'll get things done. But if we're just interested in overcoming the confusion about going to a farmers' market and learning skills like how do you talk to someone with respect about what it is they're doing, how do you ask an interesting question about you know where the food comes from, that sort of stuff. It helps if you go with a buddy, you know, find a friend, uh, do things together. And I think we have, not only is that a, a, a demonstrably more joyful way of finding one's way through the miasma of confusion around the, the food industry that has us in a very abusive, individualistic relationship, but it also gets to be uh, just fun and it becomes a, a, a way in which we can connect to our food and reinvent food traditions in, in ways that, 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 that can be joyful. And, you know, when you go to a farmer's market, it's pretty easy. You, you, you take this papery st stuff and you exchange it for food. Uh, and you know the, the money transaction will happen. Then you take that food home and you fry it with garlic, whatever it is, and it'll taste great. And and you'll you'll have a great time, particularly if you share it with someone. That's that's great advice. Raj Patel is a research professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs, and he's currently working on a documentary project about the global food system. Tom Philpot is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones, and Marla Camp is the owner and publisher of Edible Austin. You've been listening to In Perspective, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, in collaboration with the Humanities Media Project, in order to highlight the importance of humanities research in a broader context. Special thanks for making the show possible. Go to Evan Roberts and Morgan Blue from the Humanities Media Project, David Alvarez, our engineer, and Hawk Mendenhall from KUT Radio. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>